So I know that sometimes uh, people ask the question, you know, what actually is Buddhism as a spiritual path? Is it that different from other forms of spirituality? In fact, no, what is spirituality anyway? You know, it is the idea of understanding you know, this thing which we call the mind and how it does affect your body and how it affects your life and that of other people around you. It's something which ever since I was young I had a that kind of feeling and sensitivity that this body of mine, the life was much more than just a body. There was a thing called the mind and in that mind all these emotions played out. The emotion of fear and you could see the result of when there was fear in the mind, fear happening. When there was fear you tended to shrink inside of yourself, you wouldn't talk to other people. You know, you were embarrassed, afraid of what they might think of you. And I still remember just, especially being a young man, just always trying to make sure that I was well dressed, looked good, made sure that, you know, your fashion was up to date, your hair was the right length, and also that you had the, the way of speaking. There's a certain way of speaking which, you know, your children have, the way they talk to one another. And, you know, you have to learn all of that to be cool, to fit in, to be up to date. But then, of course, sometimes you got it wrong. And I still remember that time. This is my age. I'm 72 now or 71, 72 soon. But then when went to a big rock concert in the Isle of Wight festival. And when I went there, I made sure I was wearing my really uh, cool green velvet trousers. And I thought that I was being really, really uh, cool, a little bit unique. And when I arrived at this place, you found that so many other people were wearing green velvet trousers. You weren't sort of original at all. You were just part of a crowd. And sometimes that really shocked me. But the main point of this was, why was I so concerned what other people thought of me? And this is one of those first little sayings which I learnt at the time which made a big difference of me, on me. That when you're a teenager or in your twenties, you're very concerned what other people think of you. That's why, you know, your children at that young age, they can cause you so much trouble. They're just trying to just to be, you know, what they think is acceptable in their society. And sometimes being acceptable in their society is not doing what mum and dad says. That's why if you tell them to do something which they really want to do, that really confuses them. What was that lovely story? I often mention this. If you've got a, a child who always does the opposite of what you tell them to do, there was this father who his son would work with him. His job was to, to take salt on little donkeys from town to town to sell the salt. It was quite a profitable little business. 
But then, whenever they were going along a path or over a bridge, which was very narrow, if the donkey was leaning to the left and about to fall off the bridge, the father would tell the son, push it more to the left. And the son would always push it to the right. Whatever the father said would always do the opposite. And if it was moving too much to the right, the father would say, push it more to the right. And the son would always push it to the left. And that's actually how the son would actually do what the father really wanted. But then one day, they were crossing a bridge, the donkey was leaning to the right, and the father said, push it more to the right. And this time, the first time in years, the son did what the father said. He pushed it more to the right, and the poor donkey fell in the river, and they lost all the salt. And that's when the father said, what did you do that for? And then the son said, Daddy, don't you remember, today is my birthday. I'm 20 now. I'm not a teenager anymore. <laughs> and that story was one of the Nasruddin stories from Iran about 800 years ago. So your children don't change. <laughs> it's, just, it's just what they go through. But anyway, all of one of the things which I found out is you don't need to worry what other people think of you. Honestly, in your 20s you're really concerned about that. When you get sort of 40s you don't really care at all what other people think of you. You get confidence. When you get into your 60s or you come to the Buddhist society in your 20s, then you finally learn that people aren't thinking about you anyway, are they? They're all thinking about themselves. <laughs> I remember that, okay, I wasn't born a monk. You know, I had girlfriends, one at a time, I keep on saying that, when I was young. But sometimes, you know, you go to a party or a dance or something, and you see a nice looking girl, and you think, oh my goodness, how am I going to talk to her? Is she going to like me? Am I going to make a fool of myself? And then a lot of the times, you did make a fool of yourself. But also later on when you became friends you know, with those girls, and I asked them, you know, what were you thinking when I came up and talked to you? And then the girl said, I was really thinking, what's she going to think of me? What's she going to think of me? I said, I was thinking the same, what's she going to think of me? So concerned what, she had the, <laughs> what other people think of us, we couldn't relax and just be natural. So remember that people aren't thinking about you anyway. They're thinking about themselves most of the time. Which means, especially if you're a spiritual director, or what I, most people say here, spiritual dictator, or, or abbot or something, a lot of times you don't worry too much what other people think of you. My job is just to make sure I practice as compassionately as I can. Sometimes you don't make mistakes, but when you make mistakes, that's getting to what I really wanted to talk about about when you do make mistakes. How do you deal with mistakes in life? And to understand how to deal with mistakes in life, I, somebody came to a monastery a few days ago and they asked me was where one of the biggest mistakes which I made, which actually turned out to be wonderful, 
they wanted to find out where it was. And there was a wonderful mistake about the two bad bricks and the wall. I've told that many, many times, but anyhow, if you don't know that story, here it comes again. And please, if you say, Ajahn Brahm, why do you tell the same story over and over again? Please know that I've heard this story more than anybody else. <laughs> Every time I say it. And that was just, you know, I was really trying hard to build the first brick wall. It was in the, the monk's ablution block. That's why you can't see it these days. It's kind of like hidden there just for the monks. And anyway, I made a mistake and these two crooked bricks, they really stood out. And I don't know why, this was the first building we built at Bodhinyana Monastery. And you take people, to, you know, they wanted to see, what are you doing? How's it going, building your monastery? People cared. And so they saw that brick wall, and I was embarrassed by it. There's two bad bricks, they really stood out. I'm not exaggerating that I had nightmares about those two bad bricks. And I wanted to blow it up and start again, but we couldn't afford the dynamite. <laughs> Honestly, I did ask. But nevertheless, I was stuck with them. Have you ever done anything like that? Made a mistake which everybody can see? They know about? But anyway, after three months, a person came. I just still don't remember who they were, but if I saw them today, I'd say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And they saw that wall, they said it was a beautiful wall. And my response was, are you blind? Are you, have you left your spectacles in the car? Can't you see those two bad bricks? They really stood out to me. I couldn't miss them every time I just went past there. My eyes went straight to them. And they replied, yes, we can see your two mistakes, but we can also see the 998 perfect bricks as well. There are more than 998 bricks, perfect, but that's just what they said. And I, okay, that, as they say, that hit me like a brick. That was amazing, just, I couldn't see any other bricks except my two mistakes. And that created so much pain in my mind. My mind was just not wise at all. It kept focusing on my faults. And that's actually where I learned this wonderful sense in spirituality, especially in Buddhism, the fault-finding mind. And that fault-finding mind can find fault in anything. The most perfect husband, the most perfect doctor, the most perfect monk, the most perfect, I don't know what job you do in your life, but sometimes we feel how easy it is to see the mistakes in ourselves or in others. Have you ever noticed when you focus on those mistakes, it kind of ruins your life, your day. You can't see the beauty in life. You can't see the wonderful qualities in other people when you have that fault-finding mind. All you can see is the mistakes in life. Yes, those mistakes are there, but 
there's more to life than that. It's part of my job as being a monk is I've given so many marriage blessings to so many people over the years. And sometimes in those marriage blessings, sometimes it's almost like they feel that I, I married them, even though I'm not allowed to be a marriage celebrant. I just do the job afterwards to keep them together. And afterwards, if there's any problems in their relationship together, of course they try and come to me. I was wondering why they come to a Buddhist monk to get marriage advice. Because I've never been married, what they would come to me for? What experience have I got? But I realized that the reason why they come to a Buddhist monk to get advice is because we're cheap. <laughs> we don't charge. <laughs> You've got nothing to lose. But sometimes, you know, you get some really good advice. At least I think it's good advice. <laughs> but anyway, that I often use that, the fault-finding mind. Why is it that, you know, I've known both of you for long periods of time. I've known the woman, I've known the man, and you're really good people. You're not perfect people, but you're kind, you're moral, you know, you're trying to do the best in life. And of course you make mistakes. But then again, what else do you do? It's not just about the faults in your life. It's about something else as well, the good part of your life. The good part of another person. And that's one of the things which I often focus on. Why is it that people sometimes find it hard to live with another person? And they also actually find it hard to live with themselves. Why? It's because they always focus on faults much more than the good qualities in those people. And again, maybe I'm not sure, maybe I'm a silly monk, but when I see the two people, they're really nice people. How come you can't get on together? Of course I've got these little tricks which I do. Uh, one of those tricks is how to live in peace and harmony together is just you know, look at in a marriage, a relationship, who's the most important person? <laughs> Keep your mouth closed otherwise you get into trouble. <laughs> and of course the answer to that is you no know, I've done this trick many times at a marriage ceremony. You know, you just don't exchange the handcuffs, I mean the rings. <laughs> and they all look really sort of soft. And I look at the bride's eyes and she's really soft. And I say, now you're a married woman. From this moment on, you must never think of yourself. She says. And they look at the guy, and you must not think of yourself. I'm being honest now, I've done this many times. The guy always pauses. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> but anyway, he says, okay, yes, I won't think of myself. But then that's just a simple thing. Then I go for the, the knockout punch. 
Not that you knock out parts, it's not violent, but it just changes the way you look at things. And I say, and now, you're a married man, you must not think of her anymore, your wife. And then look at the wife, same with you. From this moment on, I don't want you to think of him anymore. I love doing this, because the confusion, you see, especially in the in-laws have never heard me before, is really wondrous to behold. <laughs> they weren't all that confident of Buddhism anyway, but now they say, crikey, this Buddhism really is weird. And of course then you give them the punchline. And the punchline, it's not a joke, it's actually very profound. When you're married you must not think of yourself, nor think of your partner, you only think of us. You're married. It's about us. You get it? I think you do. <laughs> the us is never going to be perfect, it doesn't have to be perfect because you share your mistakes, you share your weaknesses and you celebrate your strengths as well. And if you understand that, then you understand how harmony can actually come. We work together because it's about us. That means that people don't get burnt out, nor do they get selfish. We try and care as much as possible. We don't just focus on the faults. I think it's probably because the way we've been brought up in schools and maybe in some religions, always try and focus on faults. There's something wrong, fix it. And as soon as we have those faults, again we have blame, it's your fault. Do you blame others? You don't blame others half as much as you blame yourself. Weird thing about human beings today. <laughs> so many people feel that they're hopeless. And it's true. <laughs> Up to a point. <laughs> but you don't have to feel hopeless. Instead, you realize this is work in action. You're just learning how to get better, how to improve, how to grow. And that's one of the important parts of spirituality. It's not judging a person for who they are, but it's encouraging people to, learn, to be honest and learn how to grow as human beings, as meditators, as monks, as nuns, how we can grow. And how does that spiritual growth actually happen? First of all, by taking away fear. So I don't know how many times I come here on a Friday night or Saturday afternoon and I hear somebody snoring. Should I tell you off? Of course not. Even when, not this week, but a short time before when one of the monks was really snoring. <laughs> ah, poor thing. It's just going through something, so no, you're kind. So in other words, 
you're not finding fault, you're letting a person be accepted so they don't feel afraid, they don't have to hide anything, and that means they can learn from it and grow and become better in the end. So many times, you know, especially when I was a very young monk, of course you did stupid things, many stupid things. But when I did something stupid, I mean really stupid, my teacher would just laugh at me. Not with sort of trying to, as a punishment or, or humiliate me, but just it made him very amazed how these people from, you know, what was then very powerful countries, very advanced scientifically, very um, wealthy, how they could act so stupidly. And I, I created so much happiness and joy for my teacher by being so stupid. <laughs> he wouldn't shout at me. I don't think he wanted any of us to change because we caused so much entertainment for him. And, uh, oh, one of those stories, I told someone about it today because I'll say why in a moment. But in the early days, anything, you know, we, we did live simply because we didn't have much, even in monastery. So when I needed some soap, you know, to shower with, or just you know, taking water out of the well, that I had to ask Ajahn Chah for some soap. He didn't understand English, so I had to learn Thai. And the Thai word for soap was subu. And I said, Sopo. It's close enough. <laughs> but he heard it as Sopo is a short word for pineapple. He was very kind, he looked at me and said, What do you want pineapple for? And I said, No, to wash. Songnam. <laughs> he never let me forget that. It caused him, he told all the lay people about it. You know, the people in England are so more advanced than in Thailand. In England, they wash with pineapple, very advanced. <laughs> <laughs> so I caused so much happiness for him. <laughs> but anyway, I don't know where we got this from, but somebody found some soap. It was carved in a, in a, um, shape of a pineapple. So unfortunately Ajahn Chah has passed away now. If he was still alive I'd send it to him, see? <laughs> this is soap. <laughs> but you enjoy having that sense of humour rather than finding fault and making people afraid because once a person is afraid you tell them off, what happens? They hide the truth next time. It's too humiliating to actually to be honest. And that is one of the worst things in any spirituality, in any school, in any even form of government, finding faults with people so much they hide those faults and no one learns a thing. So this is one of the reasons why, if anybody is 
considering forming a relationship, they have a relationship, they want to get married, then please make a vow of honesty more than anything else. It doesn't matter if you've done it right or you made a mistake, please let your partner know honestly what you've done. And if you are privileged to hear that your partner's made a mistake, done something wrong, if you're privileged to hear that, never scold your partner. Be honest with them, say it hurt me, but thank you so much for letting me know. I never expect you to be perfect, husband, wife, but I expect that we can grow together and that honesty, that trust, is so, so important. And of course that's not just the relationship with a partner in life, that's also that relationship with children. I've been almost 40 years in Perth now, serving this Buddhist community, eight or nine years in Thailand beforehand as a monk. And because of that, one of the privileges is that I've known some of your kids when they were just little ones, and they've grown up with me over these years. I know their parents, so they trust me. So I remember a good, good example. This young, this a Sri Lankan girl came to see me. And she said to me, she was about 18, 19, she said she was in big trouble. So what happened? She said she was pregnant with her boyfriend. And I said straight away, have you told your mum and dad? She said, no, they'll kill me when they find out. And they said, and she, then she continued, said, um, that's what I've come to see you for, Ajahn Brahm. Can you please tell my parents for me? <laughs> <laughs> and actually I felt honoured that she trusted me enough to, so I can actually just ease off any sort of punishment or whatever with her parents. So I eventually just saw the parents and said to them, look, your, your daughter's made a mistake. You know, please don't be so hard on her. People make mistakes sometimes. They're human beings. Don't expect them to be perfect. And at this time in her life, 18 or 19, she's pregnant, she needs mum and dad's assistance more than anything. And so please be kind to her and see what we can do. Why is it that some of your kids will be so afraid to talk to their parents about stuff which is really, really important for them? Afraid, to be honest. And that sort of kind of made it uh, opening up. We do have honesty as an important part of spirituality, of religion, of life, of being a good country, a good society. Why is it we find it so hard to be honest? It's because we're afraid of punishment. We're afraid of what other people think of us. We're afraid of those closest to us, what they think of us. Instead of just being honest and knowing that you will be forgiven, you will be accepted. And actually the relationship will go even better afterwards. 
because you trust. So that fault-finding mind is over. Is a very, very dangerous type of mind. You can find fault with your boss at work. How many people like your boss at work? How many people are bosses at work? Oh. <laughs> Aurora. Who's your boss, Aurora? <laughs> Who? Me. She <laughs> works with the Buddhist Society of Western Australia, so I'm a boss. <laughs> and how many of you are bosses with people working with you? Do your workers appreciate you? Or are they scared of you? So a lot of times people say that when they go to work it's an unpleasant experience. Why? This was, we used to do many sort of little conferences and seminars and this one was done, this seminar was done uh, over in Singapore few years ago, just before the COVID started to hit. And this was with the head of Keppel Shipping and also the, the boss of the Changi Airport Corporation. And he, you know, he had to sort of do his talk very quickly, simply because after the talk he was doing the, the grand opening ceremony for Terminal 4 in Singapore then. So he was you know, a really big boss. And then when we talked about um, you know, workers' experience of working in a big company, you know, he said, how many of you go to work of a morning and expect you to have a happy time? And how many of you go to work and expect that you will make someone else happy that day? It was a very nice little observation Sometimes we expect others to make us happy. And of course, the others is you. So why not you go to work one day, or on Monday, I don't go to work on Monday, it's a public holiday, on Tuesday or Wednesday, <laughs> whenever it is, and your job is to try and make somebody happy that day. That's one of the, the reasons I don't know, did I make you happy today, Aurora, when I told you that silly joke about the canoe? I didn't tell you the canoe joke. I'm a bad boss. <laughs> I'll make up for it now. It's, you know, when a canoe turns over, you can always wear it as a hat, and it always fits. Because when a canoe turns over, it's always capsized. Cat-sized. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, but if you can go to work in the morning and specifically you want to make someone else happy, it's a wonderful thing you can do, no matter who you are. What it does is means you're developing that happiness at work instead of just expecting work to be happy. And if you are a boss, you know, with lots of people working under you, you'll find that your business goes much more profitable when people actually want to work there. They want to do that bit extra. 
they want, they're enjoying themselves. Imagine, I don't know about uh, when you've ever uh, worked in anything which is to do with hospitality, but I still remember the time when I left UK to go to Thailand to ordain, be ordained as a monk. I traveled the cheapest airline at the time, which was Aeroflot, the Soviet Union airline. And I remember to this day just boarding in um, Heathrow and then flying to Moscow. And on the flight, I was thirsty. So I just, you know, the flight attendant walked past and the flight entertainment was just these magazines with the latest five-year plan in the Urals or something. And I asked, oh, can I have a glass of water, please? I was very polite. And the flight attendant turned around at me and said, NYET! It's Russian for no. And she was built like an Olympic weightlifter. <laughs> I never replied. I was scared. I sat quietly in my seat for the, the rest of the flight. <laughs> That's no exaggeration. <laughs> that was the worst customer service I've ever experienced. I never wanted to fly with that airline again. But never <laughs> but nevertheless, when you had a little bit of kindness, has anyone really gone that extra distance for you? Have they? And if they do like as a monk, talking about airlines. As a monk, that sometimes I got really hungry because you can only eat in the morning times, afternoon, evening, night times, you can't eat anything. And I remember just going to this airport, and this was over in Jogjakarta, and I was really starving. And so this person said, Oh, you know, we can get you something to eat. And I remember this very, not only a small lunch, but they didn't need to, it wasn't their job to do it, but they did it anyway. I always feel so grateful for them. A tiny thing which made a lot of difference to my tummy. And when those sort of things happen, someone gives you a little bit of kindness, you remember it. You know, my favorite um, terminal in the world, I've got to say this, was in, yeah, it was in Auckland in New Zealand. The only reason why was that as soon as you land there, when you go into the terminal, people were waiting for their baggage, you know, on those carousels. There was a little stall there which gave you free cups of tea or coffee or whatever you wanted. Just, you know, it was uh, staffed by volunteers. A tea bag doesn't cost much. And just they can make hot water, had a bit of milk, whatever you want. And they were giving that out for free for anybody to say, welcome to New Zealand. I don't know why other countries can't do that. Why, imagine you land in Perth Airport, and then what do they ask you? Let me see your passport. How much of this are you carrying? Are you carrying any fruit or vegetables? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got to protect for biosecurity, but can't we be kind? kind of kind. <laughs> so anyway, 
that was something which I remember. I hope it's still there. I haven't been to New Zealand for a while. But just that little bit of kindness is really, really helpful. So this is actually where we can, you know, instead of having fault finding, so we can have more trust and more kindness, just like giving you a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or some water or something, it costs very little, but it actually enhances the reputation of you know the country you're going to see, or the um, the whole journey it makes it much more pleasant for everybody. So that's one of the reasons why, even as a monk, sometimes you know you feel it's a very strict life as a monk. There's so many things you can't do. There's so many rules you have to be concerned about. But you know, when I sort of took over the leadership of Bodhinyana Monastery, I forget how many years ago now, I think it's about 30 years ago, I think now. But anyway, when I took over the leadership of that monastery, we did do a little change to the monastic rules there. This is not what was taught by the Buddha, but the special rules we add to it. And the first rule which I put in there was kindness is rule number one. And that sort of governs everything else. And whenever you see acts of kindness and compassion, it just, they're so beautiful. Just one which comes up now, there was a, a judge or a magistrate up north, north of Western Australia, and you know, there was a lot of problems with youth uh, breaking rules, you know, breaking the law. And this young indigenous boy had been in front of this magistrate so many times before. And so the magistrate says, you again. So what are we going to do with you? And so he looked at the indigenous boy and said to him, look, if you keep your nose clean for six months, just for six months, so I don't see you in this court for six months, I will out of my own money buy you a BMX bike, just for you. I'll give you a reward for being good, rather than a punishment. And I think he said at the time when I read the article, it was a bit sort of illegal doing that. You're not really supposed to do that. But he said that, and this little kid was shocked. But he did keep his nose clean, and the magistrate did pay with his own funds for a bike for the kid. And that just act of kindness and care. I didn't follow up on that, what happened next. I'm pretty sure that that probably changed that kid's life and probably eventually just grew up and became a really good kid. To make that, reinforce that story, I just remember this story. Many, many years ago, I was invited to give a speech at this education conference here in Perth. And it was, I think, for the western area or southern area of the education department here in Western Australia, some big shots. And so when I came in, I only went there because it was in the morning and they said a free breakfast. So oh, that's fair enough. <laughs> I went for my free breakfast. And then this lady came up and said, oh, Ajahn Brahm, thank you for coming. Do you remember me? 
I said, no, I don't. Sometimes I upset people because I'm honest. And of course she wasn't upset, she smiled. And she said, you're the reason why we're holding this conference. What? What have I done? And she, she said that I came to her um, school where she was a principal over in, I think, Gosnells many years ago. When I went there, I told her of the Emperor's Three Questions store, uh, tale. Now is the most important time. The one in front of you is the most important person in the whole world. And the most important thing to do is to be kind. You give a whole sort of talk about that. It's a brilliant little tale. But then she said she was the principal at the time. She didn't really know what to expect. But afterwards, she said that evening, that very evening after my talk, she sent in her resignation letter to the education department. She said, something else I really wanted to do. Now is the most important time. So I'm going to do it this evening. She resigned from being the principal of the school. And she went over to the, the big shots, you know, in East Perth and taught them into funding a program for the kids who never got to school. The kids who were living in Perth, who were dealing in drugs, the girls who were prostituting themselves, really underage, uh, any age is not good for that, but the, people, the kids were really in big trouble. And then she talked to them, first of all. Now is the most important time. This kid was right in front of them. They were important. And she wasn't trying to punish them or dis demean them, diminish them. She was just being kind to them. And so eventually the kids trusted her. And she learned what they needed. And she went back to the education department to try and get a program so any kids who wanted to can go back to school in the evenings, whatever time they wanted, with food or whatever. And it was highly, highly successful. And that's why she said, we want you to come back here just to thank you for doing this for us. I did give my talk, but it was the kid who talked after me. He stole the show. Because when he said, you know, where he'd come from, you know, dealing in drugs, a no-hoper, that's what he's called himself. Just, you know, who would ever employ him or ever trust him when he was stealing just to survive? And then he said how he'd got into this program, finished his year 12s, and had a place at university the next year. <laughs> And he was one of these kids who was basically ruined by the time he was only 12. And this little program had got him back to school and university again. And he was so articulate the way he spoke. So straight away, I said, wow, you know, you, you won the Speak of the Year Award today. And just from a little idea of you know, just the Empress three questions. Now is the most important time. The one in front of you is the most important person in the world. I wish they'd have known that in Aeroflot Airlines. 
instead of just saying yet. <laughs> That's the total opposite. And that particular story was so well regarded when I used, actually I'm going to Hong Kong again in a couple of weeks time, but when I used to go to Hong Kong I had lots of uh, people who worked for Cathay Pacific and that's when I got invited into the Cathay Pacific to give a talk to everybody and the Empress three questions, the head of the uh, occupation, what was it, the hate, human development, HD department, came to listen to the talk and told me that once listened to that story, he'd actually made that as part of the training of all staff in Cathay Pacific Airlines, the Empress Three Questions. And to say thank you to me, they, I shouldn't really tell you this, but they allowed me to go into the staff training part of Cathay Pacific. And they put me in the training pilot seat of one of these big aircraft there. They said, don't touch anything, Ajahn we'll be in big trouble if you break something. <laughs> and they took a few photographs, I'm not quite sure where they are, they to be kept secret, of Captain Ajahn Brahmin. I think it was a Boeing 747 thing. It's one of the training ones. And so on the, in front of you, they could press a button and it was like an airport in Dallas, in Texas, or in, in Norway somewhere with snow. It's amazing what they could, that's how they trained everybody. But anyway, that was a fun thing to do. I'm not supposed to say anything because that would be illegal. But I'm not a terrorist, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I tell terrible jokes, but that's the worst I do. But anyway, that was a wonderful way of just showing just how these ideas, like kindness and mindfulness, caring rather than curing, what that actually does in this world. Not fault-finding, but to say even those kids dealing drugs, sleeping under the bridge, beautiful human beings in there somewhere. When they can trust you, you can draw them out and help them how they want to be helped, not what, how you want to help them. And the results were amazing. That really inspired me many years ago. And anyway, I think that's enough for this evening. So now we can actually, any, okay, you can take sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Now any, any questions from anybody? Okay, questions from Mr. Internet. Okay, so into Eddie first of all. <laughs> Ajahn Brahm, yeah. you brought up this fault-finding mind, you know. Yeah. I think it's very important for us human beings, you know, in our daily practice, you know, because it involves us in it, okay. This yeah. is a very draining process, you know for the person who is fault-finding and also for the, the, the recipient yeah. and the people around too. You know. yeah. Yeah, it involves our health. The, thing, you know. the Buddha was saying, Ajahn Brahm, it's hard to see our own fault. You know. It's easy to see others' faults. You know. Yeah. You know, so the, the, the thing is, that's a human thing. We, most of it, we can't see our, you know, we, how do I say, there's also two, Oh, our ego, too, Ego, yeah. But it's nicest to see other people's good qualities. 
It's much more fun to do. But if you have fault finding, you can't see other people's good qualities. Indeed, right. So yeah. it's, it's only you have to use the, yeah. as you say, kindness, all these things, and put yourself in the other person's shoe, you know? It's and us. To, to, to bring that, 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 that fault finding negative energy down in us, because yeah. it harms us too a lot. Indeed. It harms society too. You don't have any resolution. Anyway, oh, we've got a first question from Georgia. Is that the lady, Georgia? Georgia in the US, probably. Working on my own peace sometimes makes me feel isolated, but by being peaceful, I avoid needless drama. But I feel as sometimes I'm selfishly calm. How to balance this? Well, first of all, Georgia, you put that question down so I could read it out in this talk, and it'd be heard by so many people Notice how many people here today, 150 or something, but overseas as many thousands of people hear this. So thank you, Georgia. You make, you're not isolated. Your question affects other people. And I found that sometimes the effect of a human being is enormous. So if you're working on your own peace, it's amazing what you're doing. And eventually, that when that peace is very strong, you go and meet thousands of people and your peace will affect them. For six months on that retreat I did, and many years ago, I never saw a human being or spoke to anyone for six months. And I thought I was just not really helping anybody. It helped a huge number of people, way beyond uh, what I thought was possible. So don't feel yourself as isolated. You're isolated for a while, but then you are building up this spiritual strength, which will be shared, spiritual capital, which will be shared for so many other beings afterwards. The next question is from India, from Kushal Jadav. Ajahn Brahm said that we must have lower expectations from others and the world as a whole. Isn't this a pessimistic way to live? When you lower expectations, what people actually give you becomes a pleasant surprise. And that pleasant surprise, it isn't pessimistic. You get, when you don't really feel you're gonna get anything from the government, and they suddenly give you something, wow, I never expected that. <laughs> you know, when someone has been really mean to you, suddenly gives you um, an, just a smile. Wow, that was nice. The problem is that our expectations are way too high. What we expect from ourselves, we expect from the world, we expect even from like a husband or a wife. What children expect from parents is way too much. It'd be wonderful if you could lower the expectations and you get pleased so much more. Even like in the building industry, we expect so much from builders, and sometimes if you know just how well they can hide their mistakes, <laughs> you'd be afraid to actually to move into a house. Jesse Tan, I open my... Okay, I open my door of my new apartment during Hungry Ghost Month. 
there seemed to be one or two evil spirits in the house. There were a lot of problems and things never being smooth. What can I do? Say thank you, evil spirits. There's nothing which is evil in this world. There's just sometimes there are things which are stupid. Have you ever, what is it, the, those of you who have been to Jhana Grove Retreat Center, you probably have seen the, the, the little snake we have. Well, not a little snake, it's a big one, a dugite, which you now hangs around the, uh, the cottages. It's a very lovely snake, it never harms anybody. But uh, our caretaker there, Scotty, he you know, saw the, the snake nicely curled up and so got the camera out and took a nice photograph of it. And that got put in one of the magazines. So that snake is now famous. I'm sure that snake is just, thank you, Scotty, for making me famous. <laughs> if you're kind, to what other people think is dangerous, that which is dangerous looks after you. So, if you have hungry ghosts, you know, just share them some merits, put some food out for them to actually to, to see and, and give them lots of loving kindness, and there, there won't be evil spirits anymore. They'll be very thankful to be with you. And they protect you. How much does a security system cost? Burglar alarms. If you get hungry ghosts in your house, you don't have to pay any insurance at all. <laughs> Some thief goes into your house and the hungry ghosts, <laughs> and they run away. It's much more efficient than anything else. From Sri Lanka. How to stay calm in economic crisis and keep on studying for a competitive exam. In economic crisis, like sometimes you look in the past and how much money people had and how they lived. I remember just you know, in these old mansions over in England, you know, even like palaces, people lived in such small areas. And sometimes some of the houses you see here in Perth, you know, that even kings would not live in such magnificent dwellings when they were alive. They were cold, they didn't have air cons. They, you know, they got food, but not as like healthy food as we have these days. Yeah, they had entertainment. Maybe they had a sort of, what do they call it, that little joker or jester trying to make them laugh. And you don't need a jester anymore to make you laugh. You've got <laughs> Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> or you get professional comedians. <laughs> so sometimes, again, it's economic crisis. It's maybe not as much as you used to have before. But always, I always remember how the Buddha taught the monks. As long as you have what they call the four basic requisites, which is, you know, food to eat. It may not be the best food, but you've got some food. And that you have just a place to stay, like a roof over your head. It doesn't need to be sort of fantastic. You have something to wear, 
doesn't have to be Chanel or Gucci or I don't know. And then you have medicines in time of sickness, that's all one really needs. The basic requisites for life. So if you have enough of those basic requisites, fine. But other stuff is not so important. You can get by without that. Especially in Sri Lanka, because it's a warm country. But, you know, as long as you protect it from the rain. And of course, economies, they come and go. They get stronger, they get weaker. A competitive exam, you know, learn how to meditate. And when you relax your mind, your brain becomes much more effective and strong. You do really well in the exam. And it may be that you can help the economy in Sri Lanka grow. And lastly, from Borneo, what happens to our mind when we meditate versus to when people watch a movie? Why do people find pleasure in watching? And if thinking is not suggesting this path, then when is thinking useful? If you watch a movie, you get kind of instant pleasure, but you have to pay for it afterwards. That's one of the things which the Buddha said, like such sensory pleasure is like going into debt. You got some extra money, you have to pay it back when the movie finishes, when you're bored. When you meditate, there's no debt involved at all. You're peaceful, you become wise, you become kinder. You don't become kinder through watching movies. And you get tired after watching too many movies. In meditation, it gives you this beautiful spiritual energy inside. When is thinking useful? When is thinking useful that sometimes people invite me to their house or they invite me overseas or there was a doctor here last week who kept asking me to please come and get a checkup, and I kept on saying no, 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 no. And then I said what I often say, okay, I'll think about it. That's when it's useful. It's a useful excuse to do nothing. I've been thinking about many invitations for so many years. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so now we can, was there any other questions? It's a nice time to finish, it's nine o'clock. Okay, let's bow three times to Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and if any other questions you have afterwards, let's see what happens. Pati Pano Bhagavato 
Sawaka Sango Sangang Namami